Anybody love Jesus? Say amen. amen. Glad to have you with us this morning. If you would stand one more time, please. I want to uh, look together quickly to Romans chapter 12. If you would find a screen, let's read together. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing time in the worship this morning. Lord, for your presence. Lord, for the communion as we renew our covenant with you and with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. I just acknowledge before you and before this group that I cannot do anything apart from you. Holy Spirit, you're the only teacher. Uh, do what only you can do. I thank you that through you I can do all things and I'll be careful in every way to give you the glory and the praise. And all of God's people said... Amen. The title of the message today is called Mission, Recover the Lost. You may be seated. I want to review a little bit today, and then I'm going to read another passage in just a moment for our, our message text today. Um, this series, we have been dealing with the concept of worldview. A worldview is a mentality. It's a mindset um, I'm, I'm a little bit probably overdramatic sometimes in pulling the glasses off and putting them back on to show you what I mean by a set of lenses at which we look at the world and we perceive reality around us. Uh, it's a set of overarching ideas or prevailing ideas, a philosophy of life. We've talked in this series, today is number four, Mission Recovering the Lost. And we're not only talking about sinners in the sense of the lost, but we're going to broaden that hugely today in what all is lost, because there's a lot more things lost than just your soul or my soul before Christ came into our lives. Uh, the, the purpose of doing a series like this is not to equip you uh, to argue with an atheist or to, to be argumentative in any kind of way. If anything, we want to be the opposite. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, to set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and to be ready to give an answer. It's the Greek word apologia. We, we get what looks like the word apology in English, but apologetics has nothing to do with saying I'm sorry. It means to make a defense for. So the word that Peter gave to the church was set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts and be ready to make a defense for the things that you believe. People are going to ask you, what is the reason for the hope that is in you? And do it, the King James says, with meekness and fear. The newer translations say, with gentleness and respect. I believe that whatever we do in presenting the gospel, that it needs to be done in a loving manner, in a respectful manner, and not in a condescending, I know more than you do about theology manner. Certainly never in that kind of way at all. That's not our purpose. I want to help you as believers to be able to find a place of understanding what the call of God is on your life and how you can live that to the fullest. Because you're a person of destiny. You're a man of purpose. You're a woman of faith in this room. God has His hand on your life. Um, you're in a battle just like the rest of us. Nobody in this room is perfect. Uh, we don't begin from that premise. Uh, the only one that's perfect is Jesus. And so I always point, to you, uh, point you to Him to say, let's look at Him. Everybody else is in process. Come on, somebody say Amen. That does not give us an excuse to stay the way we are, but it gives us grace to understand that God's still working on us, okay? 
So we remove this whole Southern churchianity, religious mindset idea that, we, that are exist, that exists in so many churches. And, and so obviously I'm not mentioning names. A lot of great churches in West Memphis, Marion. But there's some that it's just, you know, it's just pervasive uh, of this idea of legalism and a kind of expectation of perfection on everybody else but not ourselves, so to speak. Uh, we have a tendency sometimes to judge everybody else by their actions, but we want everyone to judge us by our intentions. And that's, that's right there, just the spirit of legalism gone to seed. And so we hate legalism around here, but we love legalists. So if you are one, come on in. We're gonna, we're gonna, we, we, we've got a metal detector at the door, and we'll frisk you of all your guns and tell you to put your bag of rocks down because we want to love Jesus and we want to love his people around here. Come on, somebody. All right? Um, we've talked about worldview. We've talked about loving God with all of our minds. I'm not going to go back and re-preach these messages, but I'm giving you one little thought from each one. Number one is really about the fact that it's spirit and truth. It's emotion, it's experience, but it's also an intellectual concept that I must understand and have become real in my life. It has to be applied. I can know about the new birth, but it's entirely different when I experience the new birth and Christ comes to live in my own heart. So I, 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 want, to learn, I want to learn to love God with all of my heart, soul, mind. Everybody say mind. And strength. So I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind. My mind is critical because what I believe is going to affect my behavior. Say that with me. Belief affects behavior. Say it again. Come on. Belief affects behavior. Number two, we talked about begin at the beginning. We looked at four components of a biblical worldview. Creation. The fact that we are made by God with a purpose and with design. That we are no random accident. There is no such thing as lucky mud. You know, the way the evolutionists teach it is that it's from goo to you by way of the zoo. But there is no lucky mud. There's no primordial soup that had the right amount of proteins and enzymes and everything that all of a sudden produced life. Um, I want you to know that God formed you. He made you. He knew you in your mother's womb before you were ever born. You were fearfully and wonderfully made. He called you by name. He, he knew what color your eyes were, who your parents were going to be, what part of the world you were going to be born in, the, the time, the century, the life, the culture in which you would be born in, the language that you would, would be your native tongue that you were going to speak, whether you're going to be red, yellow, black, and white. God designed all of that with a purpose. Come on, somebody. Secondly, this morning, it's the fall of man. Why is the world in the mess it's in? Why, do I, why am I in the mess I'm in? Thirdly, the redemption of Christ at the cross, what we celebrated in the Lord's table, Holy Communion this morning. And then finally, the purpose of the church and the earth is about restoration. It's about recovering the lost. And again, that's not just a soul-saving mission of ripping... Uh, Souls out of the fires of hell. That starts at that place, but that's not all that our mission is about when we talk about recovering lost. Okay? Third one last week, Chip Bueller did an amazing job. Great friend of mine. Always love being with Chip because he stimulates my thinking. He challenges um, sort of the boundaries of my thinking. He's a, extremely well-read. At the same time, he's crazy in love with Jesus and he preaches with a passion. And, and I love his heart. And he, he gave a prophetic word that I believe that is for us. Remember, you can go back and watch, or hear rather, not watch yet. We're going to upgrade and get it to where you can actually see the whole thing as an MP4. 
probably this year. But right now, what we're doing is you can access all of these messages free of charge, no, no cost whatsoever, at victorywired.com, okay, under media messages. Uh, it talked about getting the perspectives of God. He talked about the purpose of the kingdom of God. Everybody say the big picture. So the big picture is the kingdom of God. We are spreading and advancing the lordship of Jesus Christ. He talked about prophetic perspectives where we can see things as God sees them. We want to we see with the eyes of God. Kind of that Brandon Heath song, Give me your eyes, Lord, so I can see the world the way you see the world. And then out of that, we, we learned some principles of influence. So this morning, we are at a place. None of my clocks are working, but I brought my handy one right here. There's something up there. Can you fix it, tech guy? I love you, tech man. Okay. Um, this morning, I just want to say this as we make an attempt to really dig in deeper into the Word. Uh, if you've never had a, an opportunity to get a grounding, we're going to do something around here the first Thursday night of April, and it's going to go six weeks. This, it's going to be called 40 Days in the Word. Everybody say 40 Days in the Word. Now, everybody that will participate, I'm going to give you the, a copy of this, this little manual, a book. We're going to meet at 6.30 for six Thursday nights. This is our spring life group situation. We're not going into homes the way we typically have in the past, but this time we're going to meet down here at Victory, watch about a 25-minute video, and then break up into about eight or ten small groups of about anywhere from eight to 12 people, one in that corner, one over this corner, and down the classrooms and the halls and various places around the building. We will have nursery-provided child care and ministry. The children will be doing something very similar to what we're doing which is basically introducing to you how to open the Bible and study it and see what it says and glean from it and then learn how to apply it to your life. If you're a new Christian, this is critical for you because it will make the Word of God come alive and it will get you excited about your own personal time in the Word in the way you see me excited on Sunday because I've done this every day of the week and been in the Word in prayer and seeking the face of the Lord. So that starts April the 4th, runs through May the 9th. It's just six weeks. Everybody say six weeks. Look, anybody can commit something. For, you can commit to something for six weeks. And, and you know, I know everybody's going to have something probably one time or another where you can't make one of them, but don't let that knock you out because this is a great opportunity to get in 40 days in the Word and come out on the other side of it, literally a changed person. So we're excited about that. As, as we open up today, I have another text. I'm not going to ask you to stand. Just stay seated. And you can just listen as I read this. This is from 1 Samuel chapter 30. Um, about the first eight verses, and then we're going to sort of cap it with three from the end of the chapter. David has long since split off from Saul. He has not yet become king over Israel. As a matter of fact, he's not yet been anointed king in Judah. Judah anoints him king first for about seven and a half years, and then... Saul dies, and without going through all the history of that, David finally comes to the throne to take his rightful place in government because God has called him to be the king of Israel. And he's been preparing him literally for about 13 years out on the backside of wilderness area, taking care of a little small flock of his daddy's sheep. Now, he's since then left that. He uh, was in Saul's palace for a while with his musical gift, kind of like a young Ben up here playing the keyboard, except David played the harp. It was about Ben's age. Ben's 14. 
David was probably about 16, 15 or 16, when, fall, when, when Saul first heard him play. And the, the Spirit of the Lord had already departed from Saul. And David would go into Saul's presence and begin to sing the psalms that he had written out there with those sheep. And the Bible says that peace would come over Saul. And uh, a, a number of times Saul basically is rising in jealousy to David and he tries to pin him against the wall with a spear. And so the, the history of it is that David has left Saul by now and he's out, out there in the wilderness of Israel and a whole band of men begin to come to David because they're attracted to the leadership and the, the warrior mentality that is in this young man's life. And of course, by now he's well into his early 20s. He's hanging out in a cave called Adullam. 1 Samuel 23 tells the story about everybody who was in debt distressed and discontented came to David. Now, how would you like to plant a church with that group? In debt, distressed, and discontented. In other words, everybody who's got a beef about something shows up in the first Sunday you launch your new church plant out there at the first church of the cave of Adullam. And these are the folks that are hanging out. And somehow David has the ability to take this motley crew of humans and he begins to fashion these guys challenging them and calling the very best out of them. And by the time we see them at this point, these are not just a ragtag bunch of misfit miscreants, a bunch of lowlife, but these are mighty men now that have been formed and fashioned into the leadership that David's going to carry into his kingdom. They've been out advancing the kingdom. They've been driving Philistines out of the land. That was the call of God on David's life. And this is what happens when they come back to their camp in 1 Samuel chapter 30. It says, Three days later when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag, they found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. They had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. David was now in great danger. Everybody say great danger. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters and they began to talk of stoning him. Uh-oh. This is the hard price of leadership. The Bible says, But David found strength in the Lord his God. The King James says it this way, David encouraged himself in the Lord. How many of you know everybody sitting in this room, there's some time or another in your life that you've either already had it or you will have in the future where ain't nobody around you that's going to encourage you and you have to make up your own mind you're going to encourage yourself. He encouraged himself in the Lord. The NLT, New Living Translation says, David found strength in the Lord his God. Then he said to Abiathar the priest, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it. Then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. Everybody say, recover the lost. Recover the lost. God has set David now on a mission 
And he says, yes, go after them, pursue them. You will surely overtake them and you will recover all, is what the King James says. You will recover everything that has or that was taken from you. Now, I'm going to jump fast forward to the end of the chapter. You're going to see what they've done. And verse 18, we pick up the end of the story. David got back everything the Amalekites had taken and he rescued his two wives. Verse 19, read the three words out loud with me. Nothing was missing. Say it again. Nothing was missing. Say it like you mean it. Nothing was missing. Small or great, son or daughter, nor anything else that had been taken. David brought everything back. One more time, read those four words. David brought everything back. Listen, verse 20. He also recovered all the flocks and herds. And his men drove them ahead of the other livestock. This plunder belongs to David, they said. How many of you, I want to see a show of hands, have ever had anything stolen from you? I have. Wow. Look at the room around you. Uh, I'm fortunate that I've never had my house broken into. I, I cannot even imagine what I would feel. My car has been broken into in cash. And I learned not to leave any more in there. Um, you know, a wallet, uh, a couple things, been stolen. And I remember how utterly, I, it's indescribable, I, I felt so violated. And like, why would anybody do that? Why, why, why would they take their energy to go take something from someone else who has worked hard for what they have, whether it's cash that I've earned at a job or whether it's a piece of equipment that I've bought or something, uh, you know, a coat in my backseat of my car or a, a gym bag with some expensive tennis shoes in it or whatever. I mean, you know, you can just think about stuff that you've, you, maybe some of you have had the unfortunate experience of coming home and seeing everything in your house ransacked with all the drawers upside down and socks and underwear and clothes all over the place and they were looking for a hidden stash of cash or a piece of jewelry or a gun or a laptop or, you know, a, a DVD player or a flat, flat panel TV or whatever has been stolen from you. And, and you know how it feels. It just, you just feel so violated and you're hurt and then you're angry and then you're like ticked off. You're ready to like hurt somebody. And can you imagine what it felt like for these guys who have been out advancing what they believe is to be the call of the kingdom of God on them? They're serving David. Now, I want you to understand from this picture this morning that this is an Old Testament historical event that took place in a guy's life by the name of David, but it's a prophetic picture that shows us about who Jesus is. Everybody say, Jesus is our heavenly David. Literally, he went to the cross and endured the pain, the hidden, the disguise of complete defeat that looked like to the world and to the devil, but it was victory in disguise. And he, in that one moment of dying for the sins of the world, taking on the sins of the world himself, became the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He literally, in that moment, recovered everything. Not just because of his death on the cross, but because three days later he got up out of the grave. You are forgiven because of what he did on the cross, but you have a new life because he got up out of the grave and he is alive this morning. Come on, put your hands together and give the Lord praise. 
our heavenly David, Jesus, went before the Father and said, Shall I pursue? And God says, Yes. He said it before the foundation of the world, before we ever sent him. He said, You will pursue and you will overtake and you will recover everything that is lost. The gospel is comprehensive. It is the fact that Jesus Christ came not to just show us a nice way to live, but literally to set the whole world that's upside down because of the law of sin and death and the curse of sin on the planet and God would set right back on its axis everything that has been wrong because of the original disobedience of our, our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve. Not because they ate of a magical tree with a red apple, but because they disobeyed the clear commandment of God in the garden that said everything here is yours. You can have all of it, but that one is mine. It was the tithe principle in the middle of the garden. God said, that's mine. It's holy to me. Leave it alone. And then here comes a deceptive serpent who's talking. Greek, The Hebrew word for serpent in the, in the book of Genesis literally is the Hebrew word whisperer. If you want to get someone's attention, whisper. Remember that commercial a few years ago? Some, some cologne or perfume for ladies. If you want to get someone's attention, whisper. Well, that's the ministry of the serpent. He is a whisperer and he comes and steals and kills and destroys. And he tempts and he accuses and he deceives. His modus operandi is basically a holy trinity of two sets of three things. Stealing, killing, and destroying, and tempting, and deceiving, and accusing. Jesus said, though the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, I have come that you might have life and have it what? More abundantly, the King James says. The NIV says, have it to the fullest, to the complete fullest extent. That's the mission of Jesus. I want to tell you this morning that I unashamedly believe in a personal evil. It is the only logical explanation for all of the problems that we experience on the planet. I believe that there is one who is the head of that and his name is Satan. The difference in me and a lot of gospel preachers is that I believe, actually believe the Bible that says in Colossians 2.15 that Jesus made a show of him openly, triumphing over them in it, literally spoiling principalities and powers. I believe that Satan is defeated. He is a dog on a leash and God has the leash in his hands. Come on. If you believe that, put your hands together. I believe that God allows him at times to buffet us or tribulate us or persecute us in the same way that we may go into a gym and throw some weight up on some racks and the very resistance itself provides against me what I need, when I push against it to lift it, then it creates an opportunity for growth to occur in my body. In the very same way as I grow muscles by pressing against something of resistance, I believe that I can grow a muscular faith, a faith that is confident and has a trust in God's ability to do what His promise said He would do. And that is when I press against the resistance that comes against me. When one tries to steal from me and I say, no, I'm going to catch that thief. I'm going to take back what was stolen from me. Jesus has already done that. This is not march into the enemy's camp and take back what's stolen because Jesus has already accomplished that. It's just receiving from him the, all the booty, all the plunder of what he's already taken from Satan. I want to jump into this quickly this morning. That's kind of an introduction, but I want you to see that number one, we are in a conflict between two kingdoms. Everybody say a conflict between two kingdoms. The Bible says in John chapter 3 says that judgment is based on this fact. Just let me read it. 
God's light came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. So we see a contrast. Everybody say light and darkness. Now, uh, in, in Colossians chapter 1, there's another passage I want, to, I want you to hear because this really opens it up and shows us that it's on a kingdom level. It's a governmental conflict that's going on between two kingdoms, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. Listen to Colossians chapter 1 verse 12. The Bible says through the apostle Paul, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Everybody say, in light. He has delivered us. What tense is that? He has delivered us. Everybody say, past tense. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. A domain is a kingdom. Matter of fact, the, 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 when we take the leader of the kingdom, which is the king, and we put domain, the first three letters of domain, dumb, king, domain, we have the word kingdom. The king is the leader. The domain is the area over which he's leading. And we call that a kingdom. Okay? So we've been delivered from the domain of darkness. The Bible says through the Apostle Paul that he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we were in the kingdom of darkness, but now we've been transferred to the kingdom of light. Light and darkness oppose one another. But how many of you know darkness can never win? I got into this building this morning. All the lights were not on. When I simply turned them on, the darkness was dispelled. The Bible says in John chapter 1, In Him was light, and His light was the life. His life was the light of men, and the darkness comprehended it not. Darkness never can overcome light. Light is always stronger than darkness. Good will always overcome evil. Come on, somebody. There in your notes, you will look with me and see a diagram right under point number one. We are in a conflict between two kingdoms. And as you read that, you see two columns in bold. You see light over darkness. And when you read to the right, the first word that you see is the leader of the kingdom of light. What is his name? God. Now, in that kingdom of God, we have what? Next word to the right. Life. And in that life, the Bible says, if you continue in my word, you will be my disciples and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So the kingdom of God is about light. It's about life. It's about truth. It's about freedom. That kingdom is in a conflict with everything that is its opposite. The domain of darkness has as its leader, the first word to the right is Satan, adversary. Diabolos, diabolical one, the one who hurls uh, a whispering word through you. And the very means by which he operates and the thing over which he administrates is, next word to the right is what? Death. Okay? He is able to continue that by his use of deception. And then deception traps us, weaves the spider web around us, and then we are caught in what? Bondage. So that's everything that is opposite to the kingdom of light, kingdom of God, life, truth, and freedom. It is the kingdom of Satan, death, deception, bondage. Somebody said one time, Pastor, how do you know when the devil's lying? I said, honey, when his lips are moving. 
He is the father of lies. He cannot tell the truth. Everything he says is going to be a lie. It's going to be motivated by a sense of deception. It's going to, it's in result, it's going to be death. Along the way, it's going to put you in bondage. You don't want that. We're in a conflict. The conflict is between these two kingdoms. And the kingdom of darkness is making a rush and a raid and a run on us trying to steal from us. Steal, kill, and destroy that that is life and truth and freedom in Christ. And sometimes religion actually allows Satan himself to run his hand up the puppet of religion and religion begins to mouth the words. When you look at John chapter 10 and Jesus gives us the M.O. of Satan, he says, the thief comes but for to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life. When you read the whole context of all of that, it wasn't just Satan himself, but it was all of the legalism of the Pharisees. It was the religious crowd that was putting more people in bondage through deception and bringing spiritual death Sometimes Satan doesn't even, he doesn't even need to do his job because he's got other folks doing his job for him. Say amen if you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes religion is the very biggest cause of deception and confusion and death and problems in our lives because we've got these wrong ideas that are not truly built and based in the Word. Now, I want you to see that there's some things that we're supposed to recover and go after. There's a great quote here by a great man of God who is one of my heroes. I regularly read biographies that are written about Winston Churchill because he was literally born for the time where he led Western Europe away from the encroaching enemy of a Nazi Hitler-led army in the Third Reich. He was a man who actually had the guts to use terms like the advancement of Christian civilization, something you don't hear politicians talk about today. And Winston Churchill was a true, blood-bought, Christ-confessing believer. Not because his parents were, but was because he was raised by a little fat English nanny by the name of Elizabeth Everest who held him, bounced him on her knee and prayed with him and made him memorize Scripture all the days of her life until she passed. In his young college years, for a season he turned away from it. But when it came time, he re-engaged and reconnected with the life that had been planted in him by his little nanny, by a maid who was supposed to raise a child for parents who were well-to-do in the English nobility and were very disconnected from their own son. Lord Churchill literally said of his own son, he thought he was retarded and he did not have anything to do with Winston. Thank God for Elizabeth Everest who told him he was a young man of destiny and the hand of God was on his life. And he was made for a time such as this. I love that. You don't know sometimes how much one word of encouragement can affect somebody's life. Now, what do you mean, Pastor, we've been robbed? It's, we've, it's, it's, we've, we've, we've been stolen from. How many of you ever taken a road trip? Anybody take a road trip with your family? Pile in the car and drive 20 hours somewhere? Be ready to, to, to commit suicide or kill some, or do some homicide? Come on, come on. You got in the car with your family and you're just thinking you're going to have this grand old time and you're two days into it and you're ready to load up a gun and hurt somebody. <laughs> of course, nowadays, you know, everybody's got their own iPod and their own MP3 player and we just all sort of disconnect and compartmentalize and do our own thing down the road. But sooner or later, sometime on a several multiple day, two week road trip where you're going to be spending some regular time in the car going out to Yosemite or to Yellowstone to see Old Faithful or driving all the way down to Orlando to take the kids to Disney World to see the big rat. You know, you're going to have some time where you're going to talk 
and converse. You know what? I remember when, when Drew was little and we're on our first road trip together and he's probably five or six years old and we're in the van together and, and we're probably 45 minutes down the road and he leans forward and what do you know that kid said? What did he say? Are we there yet? No, son. And probably for the next 15 minutes, every 15-minute increment for the next several hours, are we there yet? And, you know, after you start to, don't ask it again. <laughs> no, about an hour. We'll be there in about an hour. And he asked in 15 minutes. No, it's about an hour. We'll be there. And I kept going a whole trip. No, it's about an hour, son. Um, after a while, they sort of get in a lull and they go to sleep. And you're so thankful. You know, we learned after a while when they were little that we would start our road trips at about 7 o'clock at night so the kids would sleep all night and we would be driving. You know, the, the, day, the day trips where they would just finally get so tired and go to sleep, I want you to picture with me, we're going to take a 50-year road trip. It's the late 1960s and we're riding down the highway, a brand new, very, very new interstate highway that was put out here by President Dwight D. Eisenhower and we're headed down the road and we're going to head over to to the Black Hills of South Dakota and we're going to see Mount Rushmore as a family. And we're in our woody, our wood-sided station wagon and we're listening to AM radio. And we're living in a culture. Now I'm talking to everybody in here that's probably late 40s or more. If you're younger than that, then just stay with me. Okay, because I'm dating myself right now. And you go to sleep and this is the culture, maybe not what you've heard on the radio, but this is where you are growing up right now. You hear this sound as you drift into sleep. Come on. Where'd that come from? How many of you remember Andy? Even the young ones, maybe you've seen Nick at Night in some Andy reruns. And you know, there's a little bit of a parody there. It was kind of ridiculous with Goober down at the, at the, the tire store. <laughs> you got Barney with his one little bullet and his gun and he's going into the bank and he's... Wondering if he's going to catch a robber. And, and, and you've got Hebe with her, with her great apple pie. And you can almost smell it through the black and white TV set in the 1960s. Somebody said amen. <laughs> and, and let's say you stay asleep in the car on this 50-year road trip. And you wake up probably just a few years ago to the sound of this. What do, you, what do you think you would do if you went to sleep hearing Highway to Hell? Now those of you that are guests, we do this kind of stuff all the time. First of all, I believe church ought to be real and it ought to be fun. It ought to be real fun with Jesus at the center of all of it. And you wake up and you hear Highway to Hell. Now, if you'd been asleep all those years, there would be something that immediately would knee-jerk in you. But I want to tell you, unlike the scenario in 1 Samuel 30, this has not been a once, one-time raid where we lost everything. But it's been pilfered from us in increments over five decades. Uh, it's like the science experiment, or maybe you've just heard about it. I, I think probably PETA... Uh, would, would stop anybody from doing this in the science lab anymore. But you, you, you take a live frog and you put it, drop it into a, a pot of boiling water and that frog is going to make hay in a hurry and get out of there. He's going to jump out of the pot. But you set a frog down into tepid 
room temperature water and you very, very, ever so gradually in tiny increments raise the temperature of the water, the frog literally, this is a true story, scientifically proven, that that frog will sit there and boil to death until you've got boiled frog legs and then some. Because it does not recognize those little tiny increments. And I believe we're sitting here in a culture, guys, where we... When I was growing up, I went home from school and I watched Andy Griffith and I saw the Beverly Hillbillies and we saw Gilligan's Island in color and everything was pretty much about a very clear worldview of right and wrong and, and you don't do this and you act this way and you consider others and, and you do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. And even though it was not quoting scripture, it was still pretty much from a Christian worldview at that time when we were growing up. And, and then something began to change. Guys, do you realize that when we were children that Lucy and Ricky were in twin beds? Lucy and Ricky Ricardo turned the light out with five feet of space between them. And, it, you know, you go, how did little Ricky get here? <laughs> and you know what? You can go home this week and you can flip on any one of your daytime soap operas or a drama, and I, I don't want to offend you, but it's softcore pornography. Uh, I, where did we go from Andy Griffith to Jersey Licious? <laughs> or to life with the Kardashians? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? It's been pilfered incrementally from us, from a worldview of wholesome wholeness. And, and, and granted, Leave it to Beaver was not real life. I know that. But at least it set up something in front of us that was wholesome in the way of something to try to move toward. You, you wanted to have a goal of, uh, of having a good family where you sat down at dinner and actually liked to talk to each other. How many, how many would just be happy with that? Don't say amen, but you know what I'm talking about. Okay, so it's, it's been robbed from us. And what, before we actually take out after the enemy, point number two, we have to assess. Number two, we have to assess what is lost and get direction from God before pursuing the enemy. David looked around and he's paying the painful price of what a leader every day has to pay. And I'll not use this as a self-serving moment. I just want to remind you that everybody in this room is a leader. And especially if you're a parent, you have made a decision at some point in your life where it made your children, maybe temporarily, momentarily, hate your guts. And some of them probably went to their room crying in tears, begging God to kill you. And because God is God and doesn't answer every prayer that we pray, He did not do that. I'll just confess my sin before you right now. I was so angry at my dad when I was about 10. I tears and I'm just, God, kill him. And then I woke up and I said, what in am I saying? God, please forgive me. Thank you that you don't answer my stupid temper tantrum fits. Now, it's one thing when you're doing that at 10, but when you're still doing it at 40, there's something wrong. The point is, is that somewhere down the line, when stuff starts going wrong in your life and you can't blame anybody, it's so easy to find the nearest leader and point and go, get a bag of rocks, let's stone his butt. Whether it's the president in the White House or any administration in the past, every one of them have had problems. I just want you to see this morning that it's the boss, if it's the boss at work, sometimes the boss has to make hard calls. And he just ha he's, he's got a business. He's laid his life on the line. He's capitalized that. He's the one who's taken all the risk. All you've got to do is just show up on time with a halfway decent attitude and earn your salary. 
He's the one who's taking the risk in a crazy economy. And then, you know, we want to just, we, we want to put, fill his back up with darts. We, we are in the middle of a conflict between two kingdoms. And before we take out after the enemy, we better assess what we've lost. And we better get some real direction from God. I want you to understand that the gospel is not just a soul-saving mission where the church is here to pluck folks from the fire of hell. The gospel is not only to set individual lives free from the penalty of sin, and it's, it's not even really. Anytime you read the gospel, did you know if you read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even the sermons of Peter and the epist- Paul in the epistles, never at any time when the gospel is presented is it a heaven-hell proposition. They don't ever say, if you don't do this, you're going you're gonna to bust it. I mean, we have to put that together theologically. When they're just preaching a simple message, it's just about come to Jesus. He can change your life. And I want to tell you, I'm not here this morning to, to paint a picture of golden streets or to dangle you over a fiery pit. I want to tell you, Jesus is the most amazing thing on the planet and He will change your life. He will set you free from your bondage and your addiction. And if I can just get you into his presence, oh my goodness, we don't have to worry about heaven or hell. That'll take care of itself. It's a byproduct. Got to calm down a little bit and sit back down here. I've got two points and nine minutes to go, so I've got to hurry. Are you getting anything out of this? The gospel is comprehensive. We spend too much time with the gospel on the ground trying to save individual souls when we stay on the ground too long, it gets man-centered. And God wants to lift us up and move from the gospel in the air where we start to see that the gospel is comprehensive in setting the whole creation free. It's setting the animals that are under the curse and the ground that's under the curse and every institution that man has built and the government is messed up. If you don't think the government's messed up, you've been asleep for 50 years. Anytime a welfare mom can make more money by having more babies and getting more checks per child than the woman who takes a second or a third job trying to pull herself up out of her circumstances, but then she reaches a time where she makes too much money to get help, but not yet enough money to be able to fully support herself. Our government's not just broken, it's perverted. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It is messed up when the government itself is perpetuating third generation welfare dependence. And if you think I'm talking about an ethnic issue, you are messed up because there are so many white folks between here and the northwestern corner of Arkansas that are on welfare. You are wrong and God forgive you of your prejudice. Don't shout me down on that one. It has nothing to do with color. God wants to transform the whole created order. He wants to set creation free. We're recovering everything. It's not just our husbands and wives and sons and daughters. It's not just people, but it's animals that are groaning, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God is what Romans chapter 8 says. Matt Chandler wrote a great book called The Explicit Gospel where he explains this, and I don't have any time other than just to say, remember Jesus gave us in the parable of Luke 15, three parables. There's a lost sheep, there's a lost coin, there's a lost son. Every one of those, the person rejoiced. A dad got his prodigal son back. A shepherd went after, left the 90 and 9 and went after the one and rejoiced when he got the one back. 
and a little widow woman lost the coin and she swept her house and lit a candle and searched diligently until she found the coin and she called for folks to come celebrate and threw a party because she'd found the coin that was lost. The gospel not only covers the prodigal who is lost in a sin-sick bondage of decay uh, of all kinds of, uh, of corruption and temptation and, and, and destructive patterns of behavior out there living a riotous life with prostitutes and eating out of a pig pen. It's not just the gospel on the ground, but it's also the gospel in the air. God wants to touch the creation. He wants to touch the fact that you're shepherd, you're a job, you've got some sheep to take care of. When that one's lost, you go after it. It's, gonna, it's going to touch your vocation. It's going to give you, the gospel will give you a sense of kingdom purpose so that you do your work for the glory of God to advance the kingdom. You do it because you're crazy in love with Jesus. And God also wants to sanctify and restore even the economic realm of a coin that is lost, a bad economy. God wants to bring back to you what's been robbed and stolen and taken from you in a government that extorts funds. Do you know Sam Adams threw the tea overboard in the Boston Tea Party for one twentieth of the amount of taxes that we pay right now? Our government, our nation was founded by a bunch of rebel rousers that would turn over in their graves if they knew what we were dealing with right now. Forgive, forgive me. This is just truth. We are in the mess we're in because it's a worldview issue. Point number three, we have to do battle. Ephesians 6 tells us the parameters of that battle. We do not fight against flesh and blood. People are not your enemy. Say that with me. People are not my enemy. Look, your spouse is not the problem. Your crazy demon-possessed kid that you think has a demon is not the problem. Come on. Your boss is not the problem. Your bad neighbor is not the problem. Come on. You want to really know what the problem is? There's a problem in the spiritual realm in heavenly places. The Bible says we war with this present darkness. We are to take this thing right down to the very gates of hell, which means the church is not to close in and to be a fortified bless-me club where we just hang out together and just love everybody but don't want anything to do with the world because we're scared that our good will be overcome by their evil or our light will be sucked up by their darkness. I want to get you so confident in who Jesus is and get you so in love with Him that you're not afraid to go out there and rub elbows with the worst sinner in West Memphis and know that you've got something big enough that will touch them and bring healing to them and set them free. Come on. We have to suit up and stand up. Ephesians 6 talks about seven pieces of armor, a helmet of salvation. That's how you think. This stuff is not literal. This is a metaphor. I've got to get the mind of Christ on me. I've got to get the wisdom of God. What is the worldview of God? God, give me your eyes to see the world the way you see it. God, thank you that you put a shield of faith in my hand to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one because he's trying to attack me, but I'm going to deflect them with my faith in you, my trust that you are a good God, and you're good all the time. Hallelujah. I've got a sword in my hand that's my offensive weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit. It's called the Word of God. I'm walking around in feet that have on shoes that are called peace. I'm walking in the middle of a battle. I'm walking in peace. Do you hear that? There ain't no gelling with Magellan that you can get out of that kind of... It's peace, baby. You can't gel that. Hallelujah. There's a belt of truth holding it all together. The seventh one is praying in the Spirit with all, with all matters of prayer for all saints. Number four, and I'm finished. Are you getting anything out of this? 
Number four, do spiritual warfare. Everybody say, do spiritual warfare. Let's, let's hear 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Three things real quickly. Number one, our weapons are not fleshly because we are not fighting against people. We're, we're fighting against the motivations many times of a whole spiritual world out here. And we're not talking about running out here and binding. I bind it in the name of Jesus. And there can be an application for that, binding and loosing in the spirit. But I believe more often than it is about trying to bind a demon, it is about wrestling a mentality out of an area. The delta is possessed with a spirit of mediocrity. Everything is halfway done around here. Forgive me, I do not want to offend anybody, but you go to the other side of the river and it's a whole different culture. Now there are sections of that that it's even worse than it is around here. But you drive out to Germantown, Collierville, you head south and you go to Olive Branch or South Haven, Mississippi and these newer areas and it's just excellence everywhere you look. And around here it's mediocrity, it's indifference, it's apathy, it's who cares. And you know how we combat that? We make sure that we do everything we can with as much excellence as we possibly can. We are not going to bow to a spirit of mediocrity. We're going to do it with the best of our ability. Sometimes that's not a whole lot. Excellence, literally. I, I, I operate by a very practical definition of excellence. Excellence is doing the very best you can with what you currently have right now. And how many of you know when you do that and you're a faithful steward over that, God will bless that and He will make you a steward over more. He'll put more in your hands. Don't shout me down now. Come on, somebody. They're mighty to pulling down strongholds. Finally this morning, what are those strongholds? The strongholds, I don't believe so much, are are sulfur-breathing dragons out here the way a Frank Peretti novel would paint the picture. But I believe that their worldviews, their philosophies, their mentalities, it's a mindset. It's an argument. It's an argument that you face every Monday morning when you get up and you've been encouraged in the house of God and we're bringing this message to its end right now. You've sat in one of those two chairs that I preached out of two Sundays ago a supernaturalism chair that recognizes a God who works all things together for your good. And you get up on Monday morning, you can go sit down in the naturalist chair for 60 hours. And you operate in a worldview where everybody says, well, this is just how the business world operates. Everybody does it. I expect you to do it or you lose your job. And guess what? Some of you need to get enough guts to start saying, you know what? I can just lose my job because I'm going to quit doing what's dishonest. I'm going to do what God will bless. Are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? And we live in a relativistic worldview, a mindset that basically says there's no more standard, there's no more truth. And in the kingdom of light, where there is life, where there's freedom, there's truth there. And there's freedom because there is truth. I, I could take time and examine and give you examples about how every one of these worldviews that try to literally suck us down into the stew of 21st century culture, we're marinated in it. Flip on TV and guys, it's so easy right now to see stuff that people used to go in little booths and put quarters into a machine to see what you can see on TV right now. Now forgive me if that's too plainly spoken, but it's the truth. Stuff that we see right now on, on just general network TV is so on the edge of pornographic, it's just beyond belief. 50-year road trip and you wake up, you would know that. Right now you might think, oh, I think you're pushing a little bit, Pastor. Well, you know what? If, if that's how you think, 
This thing's been pilfered from you for 50 years and you don't even have a clear vision of what I'm talking about. What God says will bring blessing in your life and what the world is trying to literally continually bathe and marinate you in. You turn on the TV, you turn on the the radio, you put it in your ears in an MP3 player and everything is death and destruction and all of this just constant hedonism, a life that is only judged by whether it brings you pleasure or not. You know what? The crazy thing is that God is the one who designed all that pleasure, but the devil has taken it and perverted it. Somebody say amen. So I want you to see this morning that my reason for taking the time to bring this to you is not to teach you how to argue with anybody. It's to help you get the argument settled in your mind so that you can walk out of here and go, Father, I want to continue in your word. I want to be your disciple so in love with you that I cannot even in any way misunderstand what the truth is. And that truth will make me free. It'll set me free. Help us, Holy Spirit. Bow your hearts with me this morning. God, as we're in this place today, I ask you in the name of Jesus that you use the words that have been spoken today and help us. Help us, Holy Spirit. You you are the spirit of life and the spirit of truth and you lead your people into all truth. You guide us. I ask you in the name of Jesus for every person under the sound of my voice. You've, You've moved and tapped some in this room on the shoulder and you've drawn them and there's been something electric in their soul that's been touched and or they just feel like something's come alive. By the power of the Spirit, you've been brooding, Lord, over these people in this room. Lord, some for weeks and months, and maybe they're here for the very first time today and wonder, how did I land here? But there's something something present in this room that you know is real and you can't get away from it. And I want to tell you, that's how much God loves you. He's reaching His arms around you right now in your place of personal struggle. And He's saying to you, I loved you so much that I died for you. And that's all I'm going to bring to you this morning is just to say, you know what? If you can just turn your eyes on Jesus, all the things of the world will begin to grow dimmer and dimmer. This is not even a heaven-hell proposition I'm bringing you today. It's about do you know Jesus? Can you have kept to Jesus? Like the little woman with the issue of blood who pressed through the crowd just to touch the hem of his garment. Somebody in the room this morning, you're pressing. You're pressing right now in faith. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If that's you and you'd like to say, Pastor, please pray for me. I'm far from God and I want to I take a step and come back to the Lord. If you take one, God will take the other 999,000 and run to you. Yes, I see hands in the room. Thank you. Anybody who'd like prayer right now, I'm only going to give one call this morning. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and that's you and you would like to be prayed for. Others of your believers, you'd just like to say this morning, Pastor, I've really felt God ignite something in my heart afresh and I want to seek Him. I want to fall in love with Jesus again. I want to get in His Word. I want to walk according to His his truth and have His Spirit fill my life. If that's you this morning, would you slip up your hand? Anybody in the room? Yes, several around the room. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for each of these today and I thank You, Lord, that Your Word has gone forth. The Gospel has been proclaimed. In the name of Jesus, You bring faith alive in the hearts of each of these. Thank you, Lord, that as they simply say, Jesus, save me. If that's you this morning, you're far from God, you're coming to Him, just say those words, Jesus, save me. Very simply, the Bible says that if I'll turn from my past and turn to Him, that He'll give me a fresh start. Make that your prayer, Jesus, save me. 
Thank you, Lord, that you do something new and fresh and you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Forgive us of our sins, I pray, in Jesus' mighty name. And all of God's people said, amen. Put your